Hello, everybody. This is Megan Berg, founder of Therapy Insights and speech-language pathologist based in Missoula, Montana. And this is the Therapy Insights podcast. This is where we get to dive into talking about working with people who are recovering from some, some of the most extraordinary challenges of their lives. And we're approaching this not only talking about how do we address things like swallowing or walking or talking or bathing, but really how do we connect with people. And I started this podcast because counseling is a very big part of our jobs, and yet very few of us were given the opportunity to take any kind of counseling class or get any counseling training in our grad school experience. And so what I'm doing with this podcast is reaching out to people who are more in the counseling realm, who have that clinical experience in counseling um, and background in the research and the evidence base around therapeutic approaches to um, helping people through extraordinary times in their lives and how we can apply that to what we're doing in therapy within our scope of practice. So that's what this podcast is about, and today we're talking to Dr. Rich Temple. Dr. Temple is a licensed clinical psychologist, fellowship-trained neuropsychologist, and board-certified sports psychologist. He has over 15 years of experience in the rehabilitation field, treating children to senior citizens and military personnel with traumatic brain injuries of all severities. He specializes in the assessment, treatment, and management of many disorders, including ADHD, PTSD, concussions, learning disorders, emotional disabilities, and dementia. He also uses scientifically sound methods to assist athletes in improving their performance. And what Dr. Temple and I talk about today is really all about building rapport, listening, holding space, having compassion and empathy without letting it destroy our boundaries and bleed us dry of all energy and cause, you know, pretty short-term immediate burnout early on in our careers. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Temple. So tell us kind of your story and what brought you to where you are today. Okay, I sure will. And I, I promise to keep it brief, although I'm going to start way back, but it, it won't be completely linear. I'm, sometimes I've, I'm interviewing uh, an older person who's in their 70s or 80s, and they'll, they'll start when they're five years old and said, oh, this is going to be a long interview, but I promise <laughs> it, I won't do that. But and I haven't said this all the time when people have asked me this question, but I suppose it probably started back when I was nine years old. And my brother had a traumatic brain injury from a car versus pedestrian accident that I, I witnessed. Uh, and that's those thoughts and all that is with me till today. I can't draw a straight line from that event to my current job as a psychologist and a rehabilitation psychologist and my interest in traumatic brain injury. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't think it had some influence. Um, Fast forwarding all the way from when I was nine until now that uh, in college, I became fascinated with psychology, uh, just the human brain and really it's cliche, but helping people. I've always just been enamored with helping people become the best versions of themselves they possibly can be, whatever that entails. And I really enjoyed research as an undergrad and in my master's program. And I did a lot of sort of visual perceptual research and learned so much from that and loved it. But I realized pretty quickly, I didn't want to spend my whole career seeing somebody for an hour or two as a research subject and then never seeing them again. But I really wanted more of an intimate and opportunity to make more of a lasting uh, impression on them. So that's what drove me into clinical psychology. And the neuropsychology part of it just was a natural kind of result of my interest in the research and the, the objective side of things, as well as the human side. It, just, it was a perfect blend for me. And then, like I said, I'm sure the final move to rehabilitation and traumatic brain injury must have had something to do with that early life experience. Um, but I don't regret a step along the way. Absolutely. Um, how's your brother now? He's doing extremely well. It was almost a, a miraculous kind of recovery. I mean, you know, he was seven years old when it happened. So you never know 
how it altered his course, but he's functional and working and seems happy. And again, this happened back in 1980 when we didn't have anywhere near the rehabilitation or neurosurgical, neurological kinds of technologies that we have today. So it, um, it, it's, it's a good ending. Yeah. And when you went into psychology, did you know that neuropsych was a thing or is it something you discovered while you were in school and that's when it clicked for you? It was very much something that I discovered in school. I, <laughs> I going into a psychology major, I didn't even know at the time that I needed to go to graduate school until long about my junior year. Uh, one of my most dear first mentors, Dr. Gordon Redding, who was a Texan in Illinois, kind of had our sat us down and we had a, the, he called it like the, the tough knocks talk or the, the life talk is like, you know, it, it was basically a, a bachelor's degree in psychology and a dollar might get you a bus ride somewhere. <laughs> it was at that point that I realized that, you know, okay, this is going to be a little bit longer than I thought it was. So I, I certainly didn't realize neuropsychology was a thing until uh, probably meeting another professor at Illinois State University back in my undergraduate who sort of introduced me to it. And I thought it was amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always feel like neuropsych and then any of the, you know, PT, OT, SLP professions are these hidden gems that like people just don't really know they exist until, you know, some opportunity in life brings up the chance to learn about it. And that's, I feel like whenever I hear how people got into these fields, it's kind of a roundabout path and like you didn't know it existed and then you found out. And um, I'm hopeful that one day neuropsychs and PTs and OTs and SLPs can all be in the same college, to, like, and all be taking classes together. <laughs> when you were in college and grad school, did you interact a lot with PTs and OTs and SLPs? Really not at all. And I, I really <laughs> didn't interact with the uh, other allied professions or the other, you know, the related rehabilitation professions. Gosh, I would say until my first job uh, in Galveston, Texas, uh, in a multidisciplinary post-acute brain injury rehab, uh, in my initial experiences, the psychs just, we just went in, did our thing, whether it was testing or interviewing, sent our report by whatever means we did that, and, you know, maybe ran into, waved to somebody in the hall, but as far as working with them in a true multidisciplinary sense, my first job was my first experience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that's changed all that much. So that's why we're having these conversations is to hopefully shift things in the future. Absolutely. This podcast episode is supported by the Therapy Insights Access Pass. Get instant access to over a thousand digital downloads, including patient education handouts, clinical tools, and therapy materials. Get on-demand access to courses from a range of clinical experts designed to advance your therapy practice. Stay up to date with the latest research with summaries of recently published research in the library of article snapshots. Spend less time reinventing the wheel and more time connecting with your patients. Elevate your clinical practice with a suite of functional, evidence-based, person-centered therapy resources on demand at your fingertips. Simply click, download, print, and go. Created by and built for speech, occupational, and physical therapists with new content added monthly. Sign up for the Access Pass today at therapyinsights.com. I guess I think a good place for us to start and something I know you're passionate about thinking about is this idea of having all of the answers. And I think this is a topic that is relevant across the field, any field of rehabilitation medicine, because there's this idea that we need to be very competent in our jobs. We do need to have all of the answers. Um, I see a lot of products that are being sold to clinicians that are like, if you just buy this, like you will magically never doubt your clinical skills. You'll have access to all the answers. You'll never have to live in this world of ambiguity or wondering if you're doing the right thing. Um, so can we dive into that topic a little bit of having all of the right answers? Do you think that clinicians should have all the right answers all the time? Is absolutely not. And, I, and again, <laughs> sort of, it's, well, you 
alluded to beautiful accidents that we kind of get to things in a roundabout way. And yes, what initially attracted me to psychology was this awesome thought that I could just dissect a situation and come up with the right answer and bestow my wisdom upon a, a person and quickly come to realize that that's so far from what actually happens. And actually, it's so far from what's actually needed, where oftentimes a person's not looking for the correct answer, even if it did exist, which you and I as rehabilitation professionals know that it often doesn't. Uh, but it, it, there's so much more to that. And with psychology, it, it's very much like that, that it, it's not about having the answers. It's about the process and being there with somebody and sharing their journey and giving them an, an audience to vent and to give feedback, not necessarily you're right, you're wrong, but just sort of reflect back to them what they're thinking, what they're experiencing and helping them not be and feel alone in this journey. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you have any thoughts about insurance? Because this is often when I go down this road of talking with other therapists about this idea that we're there to really hold space for the person's choice. And like we can provide really wonderful verbal, written, visual education about their health condition. We can provide you know, a clear picture of like, if you choose option A, this might be the trajectory that might happen. Option B, this might be the other trajectory. But ultimately at the end of the day, it is the patient's choice. At least that's the goal of patient-centered therapy and patient-centered care. But what the physical rehab therapists are facing is like this idea that if I don't get the patient to do what I think is best, then insurance isn't going to cover this. So I guess I'm more curious about how, like I do think that the mental health realm and psychology realm has different ways of documenting and interacting with insurance. And I guess I'm just curious to learn more about what that looks like and any lessons that we could learn as far as how to have those conversa conversations with insurance companies. Yes, and I guess to some extent I might be less helpful than, than you would hope in that sense because sort of like you suggested, you know, physical therapy, for example, you can count steps if you need to. You can, you can look at a percentage range of motion in physical therapy, occupational therapy. I'm sure speech therapy has similar, more objective kinds of things, number of words spoken, level of whatever it might be, where psychology is so much more diffuse that it, it it really seems it's been my experience over the last 15, 20 years of being in physical rehabilitation that it, the, the onus is really on y'all, on, you know, occupational therapists, physical therapists, and even speech therapists, and the physicians to sort of demonstrate that progress Mm -hmm. And, you know, psychologists, I, I guess, to some extent have kind of been left out of it. You know, we live in this magic domain where we're really not allowed to share all of our information that some of that's confidential and, and yeah. kept back. So we don't share everything in the insurance meetings or the clinical update kinds of meetings. Um, yeah. I, I think if I had any advice, it's, it's really just the ongoing battle to educate insurance companies that this isn't a linear progress. If we're yeah. trying to get somebody from zero steps to a, a thousand steps, it's not going to happen in, you know, a hundred steps over a 10 week, a week, per, over a one week period that that's not how the brain repairs and heals itself. And maybe there's an answer too. you know, with the concept of neuroplasticity of how a, you know, a brain heals itself and we're learning so much about that now neuroplasticity is so fascinating but the analogy that i always give is that you know it's like having a lamp and having the plug in your hand and walking across the room to plug it into the outlet you know when you're 10 feet away from the outlet the lamp's not going to go on when you're five feet away from the outlet the lamp's not going to go on when you're six centimeters away from the outlet the lamp's not going to go on. That doesn't mean you haven't made progress. You've, you've, you've made it 
nine feet and whatever foot minus six centimeters is, I'm mixing my measurement uh, here, but it's not until it actually hits the wall that it turns on. So you have to understand that that's what happens, that neurological change precedes functional change. And we don't have a good way of measuring that yet. Maybe someday we will. We could watch the brain rewire in real time, uh, but so far we're not there yet, but sort of educating them that that's kind of what's going to happen and we may not see it all right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I always, like, it helps me to frame things in this perspective or lens of the traditional medical model versus the empowerment or patient-centered model, which I feel like psychology counseling kind of naturally lives within, whereas the traditional medical model, this idea that the central focus is the diagnosis and we're trying to manage that diagnosis. We're trying to decrease the signs and symptoms of that diagnosis, regardless of what, you know, if the patient cares if those signs or symptoms are decreased and everything has to be measured in a very black and white way. So even when we're looking at quality of life or anything around patient choice or patient perception of what's going on, ultimately at the end of the day, there has to be a number. So I'm also curious if you can give us a peek inside neuropsychological documentation of like, do you guys write goals that are submitted to insurance companies? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our, our work product, if you will, is our, in most often in most cases, our report, you know, is that we mm-hmm. sort of, establish objectively the strengths, the weaknesses, you know, uh, how is a person performing and attention, executive functioning, language, which overlaps with speech therapy, you know, sensory motor, which overlaps with occupational and and physical therapy and memory and provide goals uh, that then either, you know, it depends on the way the multidisciplinary team is structured, but then sort of handing off those, okay, who's going to handle the motor stuff, who's going to handle the language stuff, who's going to handle the memory stuff. And then, you know, it's been my experience working with speech pathologists and speech therapists that they're fantastic at breaking down our hard data into, okay, what is this going to look like? You know, there's things that as neuropsychologists, we're not taught to think this way, but it's such a cool way when you talk about things like, well, we're going to give them a prospective memory task and and it's going to be a you know it may start with a three minute prospective memory task it's not very prospective but then you know depending on where the person starts then we might build up to an hour and 12 hours and a day and a week and sort of you know making it more functional but sort of starting with where is the deficit do we need to address it in terms of attention or memory or things like that and that all comes from that report, which needs to be written in a way that's helpful and not just, you know, severely impaired or at this percentile or whatever, but sort of lending itself to, you know, some kind of intervention. Uh, This is probably overly derogatory to neuropsychologists, but, you know, this is kind of a sort of a joke, but really not, is that in a traditional outpatient setting, the neuropsychologist's uh, motto is diagnose and adios. So here's, <laughs> here are the disorders, yeah. here's the problems, lots of luck to you. And, you know, even in yeah. less helpful is, well, anybody who deals with this has to do this and this and this and this and this <laughs> for the person. And again, good luck. Right. I'm sure everybody listening is like, yep, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you get away from that pretty darn quickly in a multidisciplinary team when the speech pathologist comes knocking on your door and says, you want me to do what now? (laughs) So, you know, you're more of a team and you have to understand that don't just, you know, pontificate with these kinds of things that need to be done, but they need to be realistic and you need to present them in a way that could actually be executed to the benefit of the patient. So I, I hope I answered your question, but it's really yeah. a combination of that report and the ongoing communication of kind of setting out uh, tangible kinds of things to work on. And then when you're in these settings and you have these collaborative goals and you're, I mean, you're getting the full picture of these patients and you know what everybody's working on. Are you providing 
like what would be considered more traditional counseling as far as maybe dealing with a life-changing diagnosis or end-of-life care or brain injury or any you know anything like that where there's this huge shift in their life and they're trying to even process that are you providing counseling services in that context absolutely and that um that gets in i know we're going to talk later about if i you know if i had a magic wand how i would uh what it would do as far as mental health is concerned, but you bring up an excellent point. Maybe I'll, I'll like touch on it now and then we could address it later in the magic wand mm-hmm. question, but gosh, you know, just like anything else, I'm sure it's no different than occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical. I know all of those, there's not just one kind of speech therapy and one speech therapist goes in and can there's speech therapists for kids and adolescents and adults and geriatrics and brain injuries and so much in the same way there are you know a psychologist a, a rehabilitation psychologist has to wear many different hats in mm-hmm. some sense they need to be there for those kinds of existential conversations and treatments as far as somebody having a life-changing event, both for the patient and everyone that loves them around them, their family members, spouses, kids, so on and so forth. So there's that more sort of traditional counseling that goes on. But then there's also the down and dirty behavioral kinds of interventions that need to take place with problematic behaviors you know, aggressive behavior, lack of compliance, all those things that we know happens in rehabilitation. So it's a rare person who can do both ends of that spectrum well. Unfortunately, it's also fairly rare that there's any rehabilitation unless it's a gigantic rehabilitation facility that can have, you know, six different psychologists and therapists on board to do all that different kind of stuff. So uh, but yeah, there's a lot of hats, uh, but the, yes, that to, to answer your question briefly, that is part of it, sort of, you know, helping people through those, you know, just most profoundly difficult times of their life. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess to kind of wrap up this first topic, um, about this illusion of having all the answers and I'm, Sorry, I'm throwing a lot of these questions at you without (laughs) giving them to you in advance, but what advice do you have? Because I feel like so many therapists listening to this are like, oh my gosh, it would be wonderful to have any kind of psychologist, neuropsych or otherwise, to provide these behavioral interventions or existential interventions. And it's often the therapists that are left with trying to do their their best to hold space for that and manage that. So in the context of not having all the answers, what advice would you give to therapists who are trying to hold that space and trying to be there for patients um, who are dealing with behavioral challenges, existential crises, things like that? That's a, that's a great question. So the one thing I would recommend, and it brings me into, again, I give this talk a lot, is um, my, the, 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 the best kept secret that psychologists have. And that, you know, the first part of that we've already discussed is that we don't have all the answers. The second part of that is now granted, there's just some things, you know, launching a behavioral plan from start to finish and having it make sense and be executable and everything is frankly something I'm barely capable of. It is really difficult to, you know, implement over a, you know, a multidisciplinary team over multiple shifts, multiple types of employees, whether it's direct care staff, therapists, and so on and so forth. So one thing I would say is don't think that you have to do something like that because it's kind of, you know, outside of your pay grade. But the one thing I would say that everybody can do comes down to the best kept secret of psychologists and that we don't have all the answers, but the the golden tool that we have is our ability to listen empathetically and empathically to a person. And if you do that and you do it right, you don't have to have all the answers. And, you know, for anybody out there listening, you, you could imagine the situation when you really got something on your mind and you tell somebody about it and, you know, it'd be great if you got their complete undivided attention and they decided to set that time aside for you and only you. 
but a number of things, unfortunate things happen. Number one, you know, the phone might start blinging and blanging and there might be sort of a, those kinds of disturbances where you don't have that person's undivided attention. In other situations, it might start being all about you, but it's not long before the person on the other side of the table says something like, oh my gosh, I know exactly how you feel. I had that exact same experience. And then the next 15 minutes is about that person rather than, than you. If you can avoid those things and just give a person your undivided attention, even if it's for 15 minutes, I guarantee you that's a gift that they've probably received maybe a handful of times in their entire life. And that's more powerful, I believe, than having all the answers or any of the answers. And they will feel more fulfilled and feel like they got more out of that time than if you were to say, oh, let me just take out a sheet of paper. Let me give you the answer to question number one and two and three. So it takes some practice. It even takes some training. But I think that's something everyone can accomplish. Uh, and again, sometimes it's really hard to do when you have treatment goals and you have an insurance company breathing down your neck, wanting tangible progress. But if you could find something to do, that's one thing right away that you can do uh, yeah. that could have unbelievable effects. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to add, like for anyone listening, for everybody to give themselves permission to even do that. Cause like you're saying, there's so much external pressure to be, you know, immediately jumping into a room and diving into these treatment goals and making every single second count. And we're tracking all of the minutes and we're held accountable for our productivity. And I think there's somewhere along the way that we've all been um, not necessarily explicitly told, but we've learned over time that it's not okay to just sit with a patient and connect with them as a human being, human to human. And so, yeah, I just want to give everyone permission to do that because the only way that progress is even going to be made is if there's a foundation of trust and that foundation of trust can't be there without a foundation of actually truly listening and being present. Absolutely. And I'll hear therapists sometimes say things like, well, geez, I'm not sure if I could really treat, I can't ethically treat this person anymore because I don't feel like I'm doing anything. And, you know, and I've had times with patients where I've, I've sat with them for a half an hour and neither one of us said a word. And I mean, there may be some difference in opinion as to whether that's, you know, ethical or you're ethically allowed to bill for that hour or not. I feel that it's, if it's done correctly, it could be very therapeutic. And just because you're not, again, giving all kinds of answers and solving all the world's problems doesn't mean you're not having some kind of a positive effect. Right. Yeah. Nothing's going to be accomplished in a single day, in a single week, in a single moment, but it all layers together. And I've, I've noticed too, like if I walk into somebody's room and I introduce myself and I'm like, this is, you know, the problem that's been documented in your chart. This is what I'm here to help with. This is how we're going to address that. I've started entirely flipping that. And when I walk into a room, I just, I start with a question and ask like, what is your understanding of your health condition and your diagnosis right now? And then that immediately flips the power dynamic a little bit and it gives the person the opportunity to share a whole story with them because it's likely that I'm not the first person that they've interacted with and they've had a whole series of people and maybe a little bit of trauma mixed in there and some struggle and and the ability to or the opportunity to have that space to sit and share that story is very powerful. I wanted to ask you um, what are some ways that we can demonstrate that we're listening, ways that we can respond to patients, questions that we can ask to them um, to open that dialogue for listening? You know, I, I guess it's a lot of it is the basics that, you know, we, we, we know already, but sometimes we, you know, it's like, put, put the phone away, um, you know, um, good eye contact, uh, things like mirroring, you know, their their body movements, I mean, not to a ridiculous extent, but sort of, you know, matching them and, and being there with them. Of course, being non-judgmental in, in any way at that point that this is an open conversation and they're just letting things out. So nothing 
that they say is wrong. Uh, you know, asking follow-up questions, asking for clarification kinds of questions, and just letting them go where they want. You know, we talked about not needing to have all the answers. What's really cool, and maybe this is the second dirty secret of all psychologists, is you don't even have to ask all the right questions. Mm -hmm. If you're there for that person and they feel comfortable around you, and they're get the message loud and clear that you're there for them and you're interested, you could ask them what color their bicycle is and they'll come back with exactly what's bothering them and exactly what they need at that very moment. It's amazing how it works. So again, you don't have to ask all the right questions. If you're just there and you do those kinds of things and you genuinely interested and are there for them, the rest of it sort of, sort of falls out naturally. Anything else you want to talk about or cover about listening? I guess one other thing, you know, um, this also gets into the whole multidisciplinary nature, more so than the multidisciplinary nature is that we're not just treating patients, we're treating families, um, concerned families. If it's in an inpatient setting, they're leaving them with us and trusting us that we're going to take care of them and so forth. So Inevitably, we sometimes need to listen to complaints and things that aren't going well. And the one other thing that I'll say is that, you know, listening to somebody isn't always about listening for content. When we give talks and we help people, you're listening for emotion too. You know, because so a person comes to you and says, you know, you're not feeding my loved one enough green leafy vegetables. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one approach would be to, well, let me show you the menu. You know, we are following the recommended daily allowance to a T. That might solve the problem. Probably not. Right. What's behind that is, okay, we could start there that here's what we're doing. And it, it is what the Surgeon General says we should do. But at a deeper level, it doesn't sound like you trust us. So let's, let's go there. Let's find out how we could earn your trust and sort of going for that emotion rather than, you know, the number of servings of green leafy vegetables, what's behind it. There's an emotion behind it of concern, of fear, of anger and addressing that. Sometimes if you get to that, then you've opened up a whole new world of, of communication oh and resolution that just couldn't be there otherwise. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I've, I've certainly spent a lot of time and I'm sure people listening have spent a lot of time. And this is what causes so much burnout too, I think is families do come to therapists and they do come with their list of complaints. And because therapists are so present with the patient, they're in their room, they're in the hallways, maybe not right now with COVID, but in general, they're one of the more accessible healthcare providers in a facility. And so family members can more easily track them down. And I know I used to spend a lot of time being like, oh my gosh, like I would listen and then I would try to solve the problem or I would try to give them a reason why something isn't happening correctly, which just comes across as like an excuse, like we don't care. I'm not really listening to them. And then it wasn't until I just kind of stopped and like, like dropped anything that I wanted to say and just stood there and listened to the family that that even opened up a dialogue for what the deeper concern was, which is like you're saying, there's no trust there. Let's talk about, um, I wrote down these concepts of codependency, burnout, self-care, and compassion fatigue, because I think sometimes when clinicians do decide to open themselves up to this deep listening practice, and there's a lot of holding that space and having compassion um, do you think that the practice of deep listening requires us to fix, solve, or repair, or take on another person's pain? That's a fantastic question. And it's, it's been my experience that people differ in how well they can sort of leave stuff at the door before they get in their car and, and go home for the for the night. I feel like I'm fortunate in that I can, but this it's reminded me, this is sort of tangential, but I, I think it fits. So when we 
think about empathy, uh, you know, and we, we think about what that word means. You know, it's, uh, it's taking on someone else's pain, taking on someone else's burden, actually feeling what they feel. And believe it or not, this might come as a surprise to some people, is that you, when you're dealing with somebody, you may experience some emotions, you know, you may be able to resonate with them, you know, that's, you know, it's somebody whose husband has been in an accident and you have a husband and your husband might be in a risky job and you could just imagine that situation so vividly. But the truth of the matter is you don't and can't know exactly how that person is feeling. And the best illustration I've ever heard of this was a study that was done, I believe it was back in 1994 in the I think the annals of an emergency medicine, if I'm not mistaken, and it was the coolest study. They basically asked a bunch of emergency medical professionals, I'm not sure if they were doctors, nurses, paramedics, whatever it was, saying, if you were rendered quadriplegic and you had the option of surviving it or not surviving it, knowing what you know, having worked so much with people who've had that happen to them, unfortunately, would you want to survive? Do you think your quality of life would be worth going on? Only 18% of them said that they would. Wow. And those are the folks who work with them fairly closely. Then they went and interviewed and asked folks who actually had quadriplegic injuries. And I think you know where this is going. About 94% of them said, life is absolutely worth living. I am so glad I survived. Wow. So even the people closest to them, who would probably know them better than anybody because they worked so much with folks with that condition, had no blinking idea as to what was going through their mind or whether they were, you know, it was worth going on and all that. So empathy, you know, we, we could do our best, but I guess, you know, the, the, the point of it is that if you do these things and you do this active listening, you can be there without going so deep down the rabbit hole that you're taking on this kind of burden because it doesn't you, do you any good. It really doesn't do that other person any good if you fall apart into a heap uh, when you're trying to listen to them there. So, um, you know, I don't think it's necessary. It's not always avoidable. There's some cases that for whatever reason, just tug at us at our heartstrings more so than others do that we could resonate much with, you know, with me, you know, it, 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 now that I'm a dad and I've got, you know, two beautiful daughters at home, it, it comes back to, I tend to resonate more with the parents, you know, of dealing with tragedies like this. And we need ways of taking care of ourselves and protecting ourselves. And, you know, one of the things is, is really to have some decent boundaries between home and work. I believe very much uh, in having a life outside of your work and having very intense interests, where whether you're very intensely involved with your family, which probably should be, or if there's hobbies and things like that, you know, watching TV is not a hobby in my opinion. You can watch TV all day long and still ruminate about all kinds of things that are bothering you. Uh, but you know, just for me, one of my hobbies is woodworking, and it, you know, if you let your mind wander too far, you could end up, you know, messing up what you're working on at the very least, or messing up the hands that are working on it, you know, at a bit or so it demands your focus and attention. There are sports that are like that. There are arts and crafts that are like that, but finding something that commands your attention so that you have somewhere else for your mind to go so that you don't end up going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, that, that kind of gets at all these questions I had asked you, like, how can clinicians give from a well of empathy or compassion that is endless? And I think that's what you're talking about is taking care of yourself and making sure that you have the capacity to keep on giving every day. Because I think what I'm seeing right now, especially with COVID is like, people are just giving and giving so much and the boundaries are being pushed so hard <laughs> as far as like healthcare providers and what the expectations are. I mean, we've already been seeing this with skilled nursing facilities and like the pressure just builds and builds and builds for clinicians to kind of give up control, give up independence, give up more of their time. Um, 
that it's hard for them to separate from work because there's so many issues to try to resolve. Like they're trying to take care of these patients. They're trying to address the challenges of productivity. They're trying to deal with the reality of COVID and it just gets to be extremely overwhelming. So aside from um, having habits, passions, interests outside of work, any other thoughts as far as how to deal with that boundary between work and personal life? I guess the other thing, it might not necessarily address that, but I think it definitely uh, addresses the burnout is, you know, we're blessed in a rehabilitation setting of having many colleagues. You know, they're across different disciplines, but at the end of the day, you know, especially, gosh, I just love, it's, it's like a beautiful dance when you see a transdisciplinary team working together and the psychs are working on speech goals and the speeches are working on PT goals. It's like, you know, you're just there for whatever the, the patient needs. Right. And in the same sense, being there for each other emotionally, you know, we're, we're human beings, we all have buttons and certain patients have, you know, a tendency to press certain buttons or they, you know, the, the way they came from, they may have a hard time with one gender or the another or one race or the other or one body shape or the other. And just being there to look out for each other and, you know, in sort of the worldwide wrestling kind of spirit is like, okay, I'm, you know, we're tagging, we're tagging here. We're going to, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm taking over here for you or you're going to take over for me when you see the, you know, steam starting to seep out of your ears mm -hmm. and just sort of being there for each other because there's only so much we can take. And sometimes you, you get to work with a full tank of gas uh, as far as our energy levels and things. And sometimes your kids already threw up on you or you've already gotten a flat tire on the way to work or cut off 12 times and you may come, you know, running on fumes and it's life. That's the way it is. But we have to be there for each other to kind of say, okay, you know, someday I'm going to have a down day too. So I'm here for you. I'm, I'm, I'm helping you with your, your load because <laughs> through no fault of your own, you, you've already had a rough day before you even hit the, hit the door. So I think that's incredibly important. And when you, again, when I see a, cohesive group working together like I've been blessed to see it's just it, it's amazing it, it, it's, it's just a joy to be around yeah we're not asking everybody to stay in their own lane we're all joining forces and working for each other standing for each other with yes. each other this last topic or question you kind of alluded to and my question is if you could snap your fingers and mental health services would be adequately implemented in the field of physical rehabilitation medicine what would that look like what would the benefits be how can slp ot and pt clinicians advocate for patients and move towards this vision because we are a long ways from this vision being reality for most people Yes, I, and yeah, in my perfect world, there would be, and it's again, like, like I said, it's very unlikely that you can have one person that can meet all three of these, but the, the, the three headed God or goddess of um, mental health treatment, I think in uh, rehabilitation, there would be somebody who can deal with those existential issues and be kind of an interpersonal psychotherapist that can work with folks um, you know, and again, by definition, it's going to cognitively be the higher level folks who can process and do that kind of thing. Yeah. Sometimes we have that luxury. Sometimes the person doesn't have the skills there. Right. We would have a, a very solid behaviorist that can write behavioral plans and come up with reinforcement schedules and things like that, that folks need sometimes regardless of their, their level of functioning. And then thirdly, um, maybe this is a little self-serving, but we'd also have a neuropsychologist on, on staff that can come up with the, you know, the cognitive, objective cognitive parameters that we're dealing with and be able to make, you know, kind of cogent treatment recommendations as far as, you know, how to address cognitive deficits and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's been my experience that particularly several of the places that I've consulted in, uh, a lot of places don't have their own neuropsychologist. You know, they're, they'll kind of contract out and a person will come in here and there. Uh, but it's a rare place that has a full-time staff neuropsychologist. And 
again, having been in that role, you know, you do the absolute best you can, but it, it, it becomes very evident, you know, particularly in, in rounds are like, oh gosh, you know, I'm not there all day, every day with all these folks. So I, I don't have as much insight as, you know, even the, the direct care staff who are, you know, with a person hours per day. So that would be a perfect world. Um, I'm not sure if it'll ever happen, but that, that, that would be what I would advocate in terms of mental health. Sounds amazing. Do you have any tips on how to advocate? I know a lot of um, therapists feel like they can shout it from the rooftops that they need these services, um, but leadership doesn't necessarily have the budget or doesn't have space for that conversation. Um, and we can, I didn't ask you this question in advance, so we can circle back to this later if you want, if you have any links for us. I'm just trying to think, are there any like studies that people could re refer to um, or resources that they could go to to print and share as a, as a talking point with their directors of rehabilitation to talk about why these services are so needed? Hmm. I guess you just identified really a, a paper that needs to be written. I'm not sure if <laughs> it exists, but, but I, I love these conversations because it spurs research and the development of ideas like this, of answering questions and solving problems. So unfortunately, no, I don't have a document to point to. I, I have a lot of personal experience of things like, you know, as the mental health provider at a, you know, at a facility of getting the phone call at two o'clock in the morning because someone's either has a behavioral disruption or suicidal ideation or things like that is um, the study would need to be done. But I firmly believe that at the end of the day, having those services in place would save a company money, mm -hmm, uh, both in terms of sort of the little day-to-day -day things, as well as the big lawsuits and complaints and things. And when the state yeah. shows up at your door because of complaints uh, and anybody who's, you know, been in management or at any level with a rehabilitation facility that has to deal with that knows how taxing, and I'll just say it, how awful that is to have to deal with those kinds of things. But boy, if you could, you know, nip it in the bud and get it before it turns into a gigantic problem, then it's going to everybody's mental health on the, on the staff is going to be improved. It's going to be a better experience for the, the patients and their families and all around. I think it would, it would pay for itself. So again, I can't yes. point to anything concrete other than my experience, but I, yeah. I believe firmly in what you're saying. Yeah. And I therapists could even too just document like this is the amount of time I'm spending on these psychological or mental health issues and I'm not trained to manage those or treat those. And if we had somebody who is specialized in that and trained to treat those and then freed up that time to actually focus on the SLP goals or OT goals or PT goals, you could also make the case there. So that, I guess that would be one way that people could do like a little mini study of their own day-to-day -day practice. <laughs> yes, yes. All right. Anything else that you want to talk about that I missed? Ooh, the rehabilitation is such a gigantic and vast kind of uh, world. And I, I'm sure there's things we've missed, but at the, off the top of my head right now, nothing's immediately coming to mind. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. The last question that I ask everybody is, what is your favorite book and why? And it can be related to what we're talking about. It could be related to anything else. It doesn't have to be related to rehabilitation medicine. Oh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. That's asking somebody like, what's your favorite molecule of oxygen you've ever breathed in or your favorite drop of if water? you're a reader, yeah. <laughs> yes. And I do a lot of uh, reading and listening, uh, traveling. So I probably go through a hundred books a year, but I'd say one that really stuck with me and I'd highly recommend it for anybody in rehabilitation. It's not directly related to rehabilitation, uh, but it's directed to like neurology and things like that is a book called, uh, I believe the official title is Into the Magic Shop. And it's written by Dr. Uh, James Doty. Uh, and it's just a fantastic story uh, about a, a, a doc, Dr. Doty, who eventually became a renowned neurosurgeon, about a chance walking into a, a magic shop and meeting a woman 
who is very much versed in things like meditation and neuroplasticity and mindfulness and things like that and how it literally changed his life, which I'm not going to spoil it for anybody because I really want everybody to go read this book. If I'm not yeah. mistaken, I looked at it. Uh, anybody who has an Audible subscription, I think for the time being, it's free on Audible. Ooh, nice. And, but it, um, all the things that I just really believe in in rehabilitation, uh, neuroplasticity, I think that's a worthwhile uh, topic for anybody. And definitely, I've I really come to believe so strongly in meditation and mindfulness over the last few years. I think it's an absolute superpower and it's worth everybody's time to get involved. But that would be my book recommendation. Go get that one, read it, listen and listen to it. Dr. Doty um, has a YouTube channel where he talks about these things and I have no financial interest. So I know I'm sounding like I'm selling his business, but um, it's-, it's uh, really You know it's good. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff for your brain and for your heart. Awesome. I'll check it out. And then last thing, you are based in Austin, Texas, and your website is richtemplephd.com. Is there any other way that people can reach out to you and connect with you? I'd be more than happy if anybody has any questions. My email is on the website. Uh, I have several emails. There's a, a kind of a sports psychology side of that. Just e either one of the emails, the info at richtemplephd.com or the Dr. Rich at Mind for Sports. Either way, um, I'll get the message. I'd love to hear from folks if you have any other questions. Um, so rehabilitation is a, it's a small family. So we, we need to stick together and kind of feed off of each other and learn from each other. So if, I'd, I'd love to hear from folks. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And that is our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to Dr. Temple for his time and for this conversation. If you like the kinds of conversations that we're having on this podcast, you will love the Therapy Insights community where we support each other across all three disciplines in rehabilitation medicine, including SLP, OT, and PT. You can find us at therapyinsights.com and you can find us lots of other places as well. Although we did just make the decision to pull Therapy Insights off of the Facebook platform due to some privacy concerns related to their advertising, as well as the ongoing hate speech that is not being managed by Facebook executives. So you cannot find us on Facebook, but you can find us everywhere else. And like I said, you can go to our website, therapyinsights.com. If you click on free downloads, you can snag some free PDF resources, including patient education handouts and clinical tools. And also that will get you signed up onto our email newsletter, which is the best way to keep in touch with us. So again, that's therapyinsights.com. And I'm going to wrap up the episode with some of my favorite words from my favorite thinkers, including Brene Brown, Atulka One Day, and Anne Lamott. And we will see you at the next episode. In medicine and in society, we fail to recognize that just fixing problems and making them go away is not the only way we can provide help. Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. As Ram Dass said, when all is said and done, we're really just all walking each other home. <laughs>